second. Why are we talking about, sw- like, this sounds like a reality TV show, swapping wives, what's happened here? Well, it actually goes back into the Old Testament, a very important provision given for widows in the ancient world called Leverite marriage. It protected one of the most vulnerable groups in the Bible, widows. You see, when a woman's husband would die in the first century or in the ancient world, she couldn't just dust off her resume and go pick up a job. She would have no way of providing for herself, especially if she did not have an heir. She didn't have particularly a son to meet her needs. This widow would end up in the poorest, most marginalized, most vulnerable people in the entire ancient world. And so the Bible uniquely goes out of its way to protect this class that would otherwise go forgotten. Protect widows along with orphans and foreigners. And Leverite marriage was one of the ways that you would protect a widow that would have a family member uh, bear a, well, produce an heir through the widow so that she would then have someone who could meet her needs as that child grew older. It protected, again, her inheritance so that she wouldn't have to sell the family land. This was a protection of her future, and it was an act of mercy, of grace and compassion to people who very much need it. It's basically the plot of the book of Ruth, if you're very familiar with it. Back to the illustration. Suppose this widow is given to her brother-in-law. Only that brother dies. And so she's given to the next brother in line. And that dies. That brother dies. And given to the next one. And the next one. And the next one. Okay, I mean, at this point, it's like either seriously bad luck or she should be taken down to the station and called into for questioning, right? Like, What's happening here with these seven brothers? But still, stick with it. She dies at the end of all this. And he says, and then they say, in the resurrection, and here you need to hear big air quotes. After all, they don't believe in the resurrection. They're saying, in the resurrection, as you call it, and probably a snicker from the back, right? In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? After all, they all had her as wife. Is she going to be married to all seven of them? Maybe God's going to pick out the first one, or maybe her favorite along the lot. You know, for all that God says about polygamy and divorce, do we really expect that God's going to stand by something like that in, the, in heaven, in this great resurrection, as you call it? You see where they're going. They're saying, given what God is so clear on here, how in the world, don't you see how that makes resurrection ridiculous? Now, their hope, again, isn't just to prove that the idea of resurrection is only for fools, that it doesn't stand up to close scrutiny. They want to get Jesus to pick a side here. They suspect that he's with the Pharisees. And so they just want him to come out and say it. They want him to side with somebody in a debate they loved to pick. In fact, if he would do so, he would succeed in turning a large portion of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, against him overnight. They're hoping that he would poke an old wound and turn many against him. It's, in, it's interesting. Paul, in, in fact, pokes on this very old wound when he stands on trial. The Pharisees and Sadducees are both accusing him and being very tactful. He brings up the resurrection very casually, and it sends them into debates, and the Pharisees start defending Paul because of what he believes, and the Sadducees are against him. Again, this old wound had divided many. 
After all, Jesus was a growing threat to all that the Sadducees had built for themselves. Maybe not their reputations like the Pharisees. Sadducees were not that popular. After all, Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century, describes the Sadducees as cruel and unfriendly, even to one another. How about that, right? But he did, what Jesus did threaten was not their reputation, but their wealth and their power. Especially, just a few days, if you look back in your passage a few days prior, what has Jesus done? He's gone into the temple, their grounds, the thing they were in control of, and threw out their money changers. They don't want this guy sticking around for much longer. They're sincerely hoping he will seal his own fate. But maybe their questions about the resurrection get at questions you have about life after death, too. I mean, after all, what will marriage look like there? Anybody ever wondered? If you're single, you want to be married, are you going to be lonely forever? If you are in an unhappy marriage, are you going to be stuck forever? If you, and seriously, I mean, if, if you are in the happiest marriage, right? Even if you're in the happiest marriage. Don't, haven't you ever wondered, wouldn't you get sick of that person after the first thousand years? Here's to the next million to come. What is it going to look like? What will marriage look like in heaven? Now, don't hear me wrong. I love being married. I love being married to my wife. We need to ask those here, so what Jesus means in this when he pushes back on their assumptions, but Jesus answers back on one, in one of the most backhanded questions I have ever heard. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Notice he doesn't even say, like, you're wrong. He says, no, no, we know that you're wrong. So here, is this the reason that you're wrong? That you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God? In other words, he's saying, the reason you're wrong is because you don't know what you're talking about. Am I right? I mean, like, ouch. Let alone he ends with verse 27. You, you are, you're just quite wrong. You're way off base, right? Wandering way far from the truth is what the, the original words get at. Friends, maybe it's because uh, uh, I see these kind of gotcha arguments all over the place, particularly on social media, lodged against Christians like, hey, don't you see this verse in the Bible? Or don't you hear this argument? Therefore, the whole thing falls apart. Christianity is only for idiots because of some... Joe Schmo on the internet who doesn't know what he's talking about and seems to be an expert, right? So I see these kind of gotcha arguments all the time. So perhaps I, I just really get some like gleeful delight to seeing somebody put in their place here when they're trying to do the same to Jesus. And yet I, ha I have to tell you the more I've reflected on this, the more you just find that Jesus is picking fights with me too. Us too. The reasons they're wrong apply to us. And I want to start with the first of these after the world's longest introduction, don't worry, the next few, few are quicker, okay? So the challenge number one, their knowledge. He challenges their knowledge. You know, you do not know the scriptures. Now, have you ever brought up something and immediately wished you hadn't in a conversation? You brought up the blues, or you brought up vaccines, or Russia, or Star Wars, and immediately the other person without, like, missing a beat is off. And, there, and 20 minutes later, you're like checking your watch and hoping you can get a breath in, right? You're wondering how in the world this person can keep ranting for so long because you've clearly touched on something that they care very, very much about. Anybody had this? It becomes clear to you that this person has been watching way too much cable news or YouTube and has come out with some strong <laughs> opinions on the other side. 
Opinions they can't imagine any other thinking person disagreeing with. Have you ever had an experience like that? I didn't think so. So we, uh, this must have been what it would be like with talking with the Sadducees, especially about the resurrection. After all, it's kind of a, a niche point of view and not a very popular one for them to have an opinion about, made of, which may have made their opinions honestly more concrete. They may have circled, the, circled in even more because they were so much in the minority on this, and it sent them on a hunt into the Bible to find reasons for why they were right. The thing is, I have to tell you, this kind of posture toward the Bible, this approach to reading and interpreting the Bible, isn't much different than us. The Sadducees weren't the first or the last to have an opinion. They went then to the Bible to prove. And I've seen both people skeptical to Christianity and Christians themselves do it. Have you? Maybe it's someone who already has a chip on their shoulder towards the Bible, and so they go to the Bible looking for all the reasons why it must be anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-progress. And what do you know? They come out the other side finding verses that they're now quoting back, right? Proof of why the Bible is what they thought it was. And yet I've also seen Christians do this, sifting through the Bible to find reasons to justify what they're already a passion, passionate about, whether it's to endorse their favorite political candidate or to endorse their perspective on healthy living or how they've chosen to educate their children. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have much to say on these things. I, th I think it does. The problem is, is when we go to the Bible— with our opinions already formed, looking for the Bible then to confirm them. Looking for the Bible to give us ammunition to unload on someone. Never considering that those who are on the other side, who choose a, who have, who've come to a different position, may not be idiots after all. Without considering that they may be trying to apply the very same passages that you are quoting to them in some circumstances that may be different or on an issue where consciences, according to the Bible, can differ. In fact, when people go to the Bible looking for it to confirm what they already know, they rarely consider that they may, in fact, be wrong. And that can get us into some dangerous places very quickly. After all, let's just be honest. Christians have used the Bible to justify not just some niche opinions, but some really terrible things throughout history not least of which I'm sure you can say with me, is the slave trade in the New World. Friends, we need to remind ourselves that it was Christians, very much like ourselves, in churches very much like our own, that defended the morality of slaveholding and advocated the inferiority of African Americans to great applause, patting themselves on the back, certain that they were on the right side not just of history, but of the Bible. Certain that the Bible was with them. In fact, it's one of the deepest stains in Christian history. Despite the fact that we like to imagine we would have stood against the tide if we were in their shoes, these believers are, were not as unlike us as we think. How should we think about this then? Were these Christians right in how they interpreted the Bible? 
The correct answer to that is no. No, they were not right in how they read the Bible, not even in the slightest. The Bible does, in fact, speak to older forms of indentured servitude and bond service. But the kind of race-based, lifelong, chattel slavery that was practiced here in the United States, a practice that was established through kidnapping, let alone the Jim Crow laws and the redlining, and the laws against intermarriage that followed here in the United States, there is no way to square those things with biblical teaching. There is no way to justify it. And you know who were the ones who finally concluded that? Christians. Isn't it interesting that those who promoted even as those who promoted and created the institution were Christians. Those who corrected it, those who sought its abolition, were also Christians. Like William Wilberforce in Great Britain, or John Woolman here in the United States, or later in the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King Jr. These activists devoted their lives to ending the slave trade and ending racism in the white church not because it was in their self-interest, not because of some vague sense they had of human rights, or because they were becoming more secular as a society. They didn't call Christians to be less Christian on this issue. They called them to be more Christian. Reform came not because they ignored what the Bible had to say, but because they came to realize that they had been reading the Bible wrongly. They had been reading the Bible through the lens of their collective bias as a society. And and looking at the circumstances, it can make sense in some ways why. After all, everyone held it unquestioning for so long. Doesn't make it right. Or nonetheless, that it was so profitable for the United States. For those particularly, for the slaveholders, I should say, not for the slaves. There were plenty of economic and political reasons, why no one would fight against it. But that obviously does not excuse it, excuse it, but they came to realize believers had the bravery, the courage to push back against what was commonly assumed, to look back at the Bible and say, we've gotten it wrong. Holding out what the Bible also says about the image of God and what dignity Christianity gave to masters and slaves, making them brothers. They came to see That the entire message of the Bible, as F.F. Bruce puts it, puts us into an atmosphere in which slavery and racism could only wither and die. And And it did wither and die in the Christian West. As much as it's, we do bear responsibility for our past, we need to say we're not the only nation that has had slaves, and you know where slavery has been abolished. And was about abolished with moral certainty, the Christian West. In fact, there's slavery that still exists today in nations that do not share our moral outrage because Christians became convinced, became certain, came to see that they had not been understanding the Bible rightly. Not because they left the Bible behind, but because they were becoming, they realized it was more Christian to abolish slavery than to allow it. I say all of this to say because there may be some issues and popular opinions right now, which we have gone to the Bible to approve and assumed that it does when it does nothing of the sort. Issues 
that are so much part of the water we are swimming through that we no longer recognize it. We assume this is just the way to see the world. And we figure God, too, must agree with us. In fact, let me find a proof of that. In fact, the, of the areas I fear that we see this most is in the shifting opinions of Christians on sex and gender. According to a recent study that was done by Ligonier, at least one in three Christians, one in three, one in three Christians either agree that gender identity is a matter of choice and that the Bible's condemnation of sex outside of marriage no longer applies to us today, or they're just not sure. One in three. And Christians increasingly are looking to TikTok pages and Reddit accounts to justify their opinion. To find the lone Christian out there that's telling them that the Bible doesn't actually say what you think it says. It's not critical of these things. What's been the, 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 the universal testimony of the church on sexuality? Actually, they, they got it wrong for 2,000 years, and this guy you found on the random corner of the internet is the first one to see it right? You can find cross-references aplenty. I can, you, if you went out looking for someone to justify your opinion, you're going to find a page, a blog, somebody who agrees with you. And we take these so-called experts seriously, these 30-second sound bites, not because these are actually experts on the subject, but because they're funny and attractive and give us permission to no longer be strange as followers of Jesus. And who wouldn't want to believe that? And before we know it, we find ourselves saying, oh good, the Bible didn't actually say what I feared it said. Or maybe it, it does say what I feared it said, but you know, that was just, that was written 2,000 years ago, only to a backward culture. They weren't like us, advanced modern people. We've moved beyond that. We've moved on now. We don't perhaps need what they had to say anymore. Friends, I want you to notice that Jesus makes some very different assumptions about the Bible. One, he assumes that the Bible is just as authoritative and binding as it was when it was first written. He assumes that it is still God's word to us today. It is God's means of ruling and guiding his people today. That it is still the word of God. And second, he also understands that it's comprehensible. Here's what that means. That even though we may differ on our interpretations, there is one correct one. Even as we may, uh, we may differ on the meanings that we discern the scripture to have, there is one correct one. The Bible isn't just some book you can make, say whatever you want it to say. And Jesus assumes that the Sadducees need to correct their opinion and that they would arrive at the right opinion if they actually listened well. Jesus doesn't just throw up his hands and say, I get it, we all have in different interpretations. Who am I to judge if that's the opinion you've come to? The reason the Sadducees are wrong, according to Jesus, is because they don't actually know the Bible. And Jesus puts their nose back in it. Look again, he says, when God makes a covenant, when he binds himself to human beings like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that promise has no expiration date. Not even death can end that kind of covenant. They are bound to this God forever. Which means he is not the God of the dead, but the living even Moses, who you so cherish, is telling you this. So then, how can we avoid making the same mistake? How can we make sure that we don't end up reading the Bible purely according to our own biases? Well, it starts by, in humility, admitting that you have some. A bias, I mean, or several. Some of you are like, I don't have any bias. Okay, 
you have to have biases in order to survive. This morning, when you woke up, did you have to coach yourself to get out of the bed, convince yourself that you wouldn't then float up to the ceiling? No, you have a bias that gravity is still going to exist this morning. You know, biases aren't bad. They can be mistakenly informed, though. We can have good biases, and we can have very, very bad ones. We need to start by admitting that we do have some, and that the Bible might actually be saying something different than I think it is on the first pass or the second pass. It might ask, it may be asking me to change my opinions and more of my behaviors than I cared to do, more than I'm looking to change. All of us, in some sense, come to the Bible with preconceptions, with background beliefs, and we are looking to have those background beliefs confirmed, highlighting the verses that do confirm them and skipping over the ones that we're not sure what to do with. Changing this starts by admitting that we have more of a bias than we think. But then we must go to the Bible, looking for what theologians call authorial intent. If you're a note taker, write that down. Authorial intent. Break it down, what does it mean? It means what did the author intend? The person who actually wrote this to an original audience, what do they aim, aim to tell that original audience? Theologians throughout the centuries say, that is how we discern what meaning is in the text. Okay, it, it, I don't know how many arguments um, you have ended up in, in which the other person wasn't hearing what you were saying. You ever heard, had an argument like that, where you're just like, just listen to me. They were only hearing what they wanted you to say, right? They're throwing your words back in your face, and you're saying, that's not what I meant, right? You ever been in an argument like that? If we wouldn't do that to our loved ones, why would we do it then to the Bible? Why would we go to the Bible looking for it to say what we're already convinced it should mean? Not what I feel like, uh, we need to come to the Bible, not feel like what God is saying to me, first and foremost, or what I wish it was saying to me. We're looking for what is it actually saying? Bible isn't a magic eight ball you can open at random. You know this, you remember in that magic eight ball, what would you do? You have a question, you shake it up, and you look at it and said, it's not likely, right? So the Bible isn't like that. You can't just open it up at random and expect it to give you an immediate answer to whatever question is on your mind. It's not a book you helicopter into and pick out a verse here and there looking to have your opinions confirmed. And there's real danger when you do it. Instead, it takes work, it takes time, it takes skill, and it takes a community of believers who can be around you and help you discern whether what you've read is actually the, you're actually right in that. And I don't just mean those who are in this room, although I hope you come seek me out or you're the other elders here whenever you have something you're not sure about and you want, you've got a, you got a niche opinion that goes way outside anybody else had said, please run that by me first, right? I want to, I want to, I want to talk with you, go back to the word together, but we also need to hear the voice of the global church. What do believers right now, outside of our cultural context, who are not in the waters in which we swim, what would they say about what I have said? I have a friend who, uh, pre who would prepare his sermons regularly, actually at the, at Emma Ear Church. They, he would prepare sermons with uh, other pastors in the, who were doing the same text, and he, one of those pastors who was on the call was from India. And they all went around when it came time to talking about how they were going to apply the Bible. And it came to the Indian pastor after they had all gone. And he said, I'm sorry, brothers, uh, to push back, but do none of you see how, how much this has to say about American materialism? Silence. They went back to the pastor and said, 
how do we never see it? It's obviously there how much this has to say about our love for wealth and possessions. But we never saw it. Why? Because it's the waters in which we swim. We need to hear from others who can see what we may not be able to. And that includes reading others throughout, throughout history. We have 2,000 years of men and women who have thought at length about many of the questions that keep us up at night. Who have written at length about what the Bible has said. Who have fought fights that we do not need to fight still today. Who have preserved the faith for us and passed it on. We want to learn from them. As we before we go off, uh, go off and take the niche opinion of the person on the random corner of the internet. But perhaps the most important thing we can do to understand the Bible is to actually read the Bible. Pretty straightforward, though, isn't it? I, okay, so I teach college students. I'm about to teach them tomorrow. You know what my number one rule of interpretation is for them? It's a super secret, right? So tell my students. I'll give it to you. Professor Skelton's number one rule of inter interpretation, if, if you want to understand the Bible, if one wants to understand the Bible, one must read the Bible. Don't go read a blog about it. Don't, get, don't find out from the other person who's in your Bible study. Go and read the Bible. Read it daily, read it monthly, read it yearly. Go cover to cover and then start all over again. It is hard work. It, just like anything that is of life or death importance, if you are studying to be an engineer, do you think you need to spend some years studying for the subject, let alone when you're dealing with eternal life? You expect that you're going to have it in one go or because some, again, you watched a five-minute overview on YouTube? You need to spend time reading the Bible yourself, and you'll find that it actually begins to transform your perspectives. You begin to think in ways that the Bible would, that the way the Bible thinks and the way that God thinks. In fact, as you face some of the unpredictable and unprecedented circumstances of life, you'll be able to navigate them better because not so much you know what the rule is, but because you know who your God is and what he loves, and you've come to know him through his word. There is no better way to come to understand the Bible than to read the Bible. But friends, this is not the only reason that Jesus corrects them, because they don't know the scriptures, but because they don't know the power of God. And that was where we go to the second challenge. He challenges their imagination. My friends, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but uh, I spent my teenage years looking forward to the day I could get married, particularly to certain benefits of marriage. As a teenager, I was looking forward to the day, right? Counting down the day, especially when certain Christian adults were telling me frequently how wonderful marriage was and sex within marriage was and how worth it was also waiting for. I'm like, all right, I'm waiting, ready for it to come. And then you look at this passage and what do you find? That Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven. You're like, wait a second, this thing I've been waiting for for decades. Jesus is saying it's not going to be in heaven I remember even praying, okay, Lord, I do want you to come back genuinely. Could you hold off a few decades? Sounds super silly, right? But nonetheless, some of us may be just con as confused by this, especially if marriage is something you're still looking forward to or you're in a marriage that despite its faults really is wonderful. What do you mean it's going to just dissolve and disappear there? Or if you've lost a spouse and you long to see them again, what do you mean that they're no longer given in marriage in heaven? What could it mean that marriage, the closest and most intimate of human relationships, would not be in heaven? Does that seem like a letdown to you? It shouldn't. 
You see, one of the main reasons the Sadducees find the resurrection so ridiculous is because of the assumptions they have made about life after death. The reason they've rejected life after death, rejected the resurrection, is because they've assumed it's just like this one. Specifically, they have assumed that if, again, the, uh, that the resurrection and the life to come, the kingdom, they have assumed that it would work by the same rules, have the same letdowns, have the same te- tensions and difficulties. And Jesus says they just don't know what they're talking about. What Jesus is getting here is that there's something better on the way, something beyond our imagination. And perhaps the reason we have such a hard time hearing what God actually says in the Bible, even the hard stuff, is because we can't imagine God's promises either. We can't imagine what Jesus could mean when he says that those who would lose their lives will find them. We want to believe that that's true, but is that really true? Or Jesus' words that those who lose friends and family and reputations and money and ambitions, that they will regain it tenfold. Does that feel like a pipe dream? Hard to grasp? Way too out there? It turns out that even disciples doubt this. Even when resurrection, Jesus' own resurrection, is staring them in the face. John chapter 20 tells us when the first disciples reached the tomb and looked inside, What does it say? They did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They too doubted. Even when the evidence was in front of them, they did not understand the word nor the power of God. And friends, aren't we so like them? Doubting God will really come through on his promises that he really can be trusted and denying this desire now that the satisfaction of that desire is coming later? Our doubt is why, we, is why you run back to porn. Your doubt is why you won't break, th- break things off with that person. It's why you won't apologize. It's why our grip on God's word slips over time. Because we have trouble actually believing in the power of God. Perhaps heaven just seems too far off for you. Perhaps part of you wonders if once we're there, we're going to get bored after a million years, right? Anybody else wondered that? Maybe it was just me. Maybe that's why, like the Sadducees, we can be so focused entirely on this world, on what I can gain and secure for myself, even though these gains are temporary, at least they're in front of me, at least I can taste them. We're not really sure that happiness waits for us behind, beyond the horizon. I've seen this, friends, I, I wish, I, this, even amongst believers, even, I remember one woman uh, I was a pastor for who, who uh, counseled her son to uh, go off and join a gay community and because uh, she just, after all, wanted him to be happy. Someone who loved said they loved the word, word of God, too, and I recognize there might be some different opinions about that in here. I'd like to talk to you, but nonetheless, she was buying a different definition of happiness. She was distrusting that the word of God, what it said about happiness was actually real. What her son really needed is he needed this form. Friends, that's what, that's what we do. We disbelieve that God's promises are real and actual and actually satisfying. Like the disciples, we doubt the power of God and that it, God's power would really break through, that even the dead would be raised. And yet, raised Jesus was. Despite our doubt and raised 
he will those who hope in him. To joys they cannot yet begin to imagine, no matter how long I could preach on this, no matter how many illustrations I could give, they would not be enough for our imaginations. We cannot know until we get there the joys that will be ours in Christ, friends. There will come a day in which you will see him and say, I knew it. I knew you could be trusted. And yet you will also say, I didn't know it. I didn't know it could be this good. I didn't know it could be this satisfying. To where the Bible will say, even the worst sufferings in this life will seem small in comparison to the glories that are now ours. Do you believe that, friends? Are you willing to trust God even now where you have hard t- a hard time imagining it? James Edwards puts it this way. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in the womb can imagine a Beethoven pan- piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. I love that. Or perhaps these are my favorite words, 1 Corinthians 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Friends, does that get you excited? If we only, if we have hope only in this life, if our happiness really is what we scratch out for ourselves now, as the Sadducees assumed, Paul says we are of all people the most to be pitied. Why else would we take Jesus' word to take up our cross and follow him? Why would we give up so much in, in taking his word seriously? And what did those who died as Christians losing so much. What did they die for? In fact, if Christ is not raised, Paul says, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. But, friends, raised he has been. Because he has been raised, Paul goes on, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for the perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality and those of you whose knees are hurting and backs are aching we said amen right then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed in victory O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, whatever you fear losing in this life, heaven will be more, not less. More, not less. Only that assurance will allow you to loosen your grip on what you're clinging to, what you don't want to give to God. Only that assurance will allow you to finally let it go. Only that will allow you to finally listen to what God actually says, even if it disagrees with you, even when he calls you to die to yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. Why? Because what you gain in him will be more, not less. In fact, using just merit as an example... I don't know exactly what relationships will look like for believers in heaven, in the new heavens, in the new earth. But I do know that the relationships we will know there will be deeper, sweeter, and full of more love than even the best marriage. Whatever good things God has in store for us there, trust me, you are not going to miss sex. Sorry to put it so crassly. And I tell you, 
this turns out to have a remarkable difference on the early church. In fact, in a time when it was normal to be married and single, sorry, married, not and normally single, when it was normal to be married and strange to be single, very strange, looked down on in that culture, the church gave remarkable dignity to the unmarried, both to widows and to the never married. In fact, it gave them the assurance that they not only did not need sex in marriage to be complete, something that the rest of the world was telling them the opposite, they did not need it to be complete, but that something even better was waiting for them in God's kingdom. You want proof? Look at the one who was never married, Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. They, these believers in the first century, found a greater joy, if you can believe it, in a life of celibacy in God's service than a life devoted to as much intimacy as they could imagine. They found more joy, more in him, so much so they could look strange, give up too much, because they had found themselves in the one whose promises would come true. Don't get me wrong, marriage is a rich gift from God and one that you need to nurture. If you're in an unsatisfying marriage, a difficult marriage, I encourage you to reach out to your elders. More is in store for you. We want to help you taste the sweetness of it. It is perhaps one of the best pictures we have and tastes we get of the kind of love that Christ has for his church. That's the image. I, we want to help you thrive. In fact, we need to say that marriage and is the backbone of human civilization by God's intent and a culture that disregards it and, and sidelines the family is a culture that not only does not thrive long but doesn't survive for long but whether you are married or might someday be married or never will be married something better is coming and when you see it you will not think that God has robbed you of anything you can bank everything on it. Do we think that the author of every good and perfect thing will have exhausted his supply somehow when we get to heaven? Do we think that somehow he will hold something back from us when sin and death are no more? Do we really think the one that did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, that he will not also graciously give us all things as Romans 8 tells us. In fact, it is no exaggeration to say that everything banks on that gospel hope. Everything rises or falls on whether the resurrection is actually true. If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to start there. I want to have further conversations with you. Before you get yourself bent out of shape by all the gotcha arguments or the costs that it would mean to you if you took Jesus' words seriously, start by looking at him, his life, death, and resurrection. If those are true, if his promises can be trusted, friends, you will be able to work through the arguments and problems and doubts and questions along the way. And if you are a Christian and you struggle to listen to God's word, let alone hold fast to God's word, friends, meditate on what Christ has done for you through the cross and won through, for you through the resurrection. Meditate on his assurances that the one who 
sells all he has for the treasure buried in the field, finds something that's worth more than he had anyways. Friends, meditate upon Christ's promise that anything you give over, any lack, any fear, anything that you say, God, can you be trusted? There is coming a day in which we would say, certainly you could, if only I had trusted you more. Friends, would you join with me in prayer? Lord, we come to you as those who do not trust your word as much as we ought. We do not know the scriptures or the power of God as much as we ought. We fear Jesus' accusation to the Sadducees to us. Would we not be so focused on the things of this world to be, no of, to be of no good to this world? Instead, would we set our eyes on the living hope that is set before us and perishable and unfading? Set our eyes on Christ, the satisfaction of all the love that we have spent our life longing for. So that even now, we could be of good to our neighbors, our spouses, our families, and bring much glory, glory to Christ along the way. And of course, we only do so after Christ has surrendered all things for us. And it's for his sake and his glory that we pray.